Face and Hat is now part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, which is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and culture. So you can get this, so you can get Face and Hat through um, iTunes mainly, but you can get other dialogue networks through the app um, called Lyceum. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M. Well, you can also support the network and you can become a member over there. Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right, man. Um, it's a, I'm excited. We're gonna, we have an interesting topic today. We do. We have a big topic today. Um, okay. We're talking about uh, the fall of Adam and Eve today. Indeed we are. Well, I'll tell you right now that I love this topic, um, which is the fall, uh, of course, as you just said. But one of the reasons I love it is because it has, and this isn't just a Mormon thing, but I think it might be particularly true of Mormons, that we love addressing the fall through our art. Um, I brought a couple of poems today, but there are plays and stories and um, it's something that we're always coming back to. And this, this is something that, that um, sort of the Abrahamic traditions are always doing is going back to the Garden of Eden. But I do think that there might, this might be particularly true of Latter-day Saint writers and artists that we just love talking about the fall and the garden and Adam and Eve and, and these aspects of, of sort of the, of our theology and our history. That's excellent. Um, well, here's what I did. I was very curious about the differences in LDS doctrine to other religions doctrine regarding the fall. And so that's where I thought it'd be interesting to start. I actually Googled um, harmony. So are you familiar with the concept of a harmony? Sure. Wow. Like a How gospel's you, harmony. A gospel's harmony, right? That's kind of the classic one. So a harmony for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would be what are, how do you align the verses so that they match up in time? Right. Between the four different narratives of the Savior's life. And so there actually is a very good harmony online um, about that for the creation. Okay. Oh, that must be your first link here. The first link, exactly. So if you click on that, you'll see that there is a awesome harmony of the creation between three sources. Okay. One is the book of Genesis, right? Yes. The other are our two LDS uh, scriptures, which are um, Moses and Abraham, right? Specifically right. Moses 2 and Abraham 4 is where they start. We've already done an episode on Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but we haven't talked much about Moses um, uh, as a didn't book. did we talk about uh, the Bible translation in an earlier episode and talk about Moses then? Uh, not as much as we talked about Abraham, because Abraham comes from the papyrus, like, directly, right? Uh, that we have a whole episode discussing that question. <laughs> yeah, that's the question, right? And I've learned a lot more about it since then. I, I recently finished a book called um, The Pearl of Greatest Price, which is... Um, uh, it's a Terrell Givens book. He has a co-writer who's a professor at BYU, and um, I learned a lot about. Well, I don't mind diverting here a bit for a second, since a lot of our text comes from here. What did you learn specifically? Anything you want to summarize? Um, well, if you don't mind. Oh, wait. I, you know, I don't know what I did with the book. I wasn't planning on talking about it, but I'll give you one example. Uh -huh. um, 
when it comes to to the book of Abraham specifically, um, a lot of the, you know, whether or not the stuff we have is is the stuff he had or the parts he used or not, and how it related to the various studies he was doing. Because when Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, he was definitely 100% um, in seer mode, right? Revelation. Yeah. But as time went on, he seemed to have an evolving sense of his role and his responsibility to um, educate himself, the sort of things you see in the DNC about, you know, learn wisdom from the best books. And you see the influence of his studies in Abraham as he learns from studying Hebrew that Elohim is plural. And we see by the time Abraham rolls around that it's no longer I, God, bless the seventh day, but the gods concluded the upon the seventh time because on the seventh day at time they would rest from all their works. Right. Instead and so, of, uh, and God made the firmament and divided the waters, it says, and the gods ordered the expanse so that it divided the waters. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Joseph Smith's evolving understanding is, is part of what we see in the, in the various versions. It's hard. It's of course hard to judge prophetic work by any mortal standard. So it's hard to, to draw any clear lines, but it's a, it's an insightful book. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in issues of the Pearl of Great Price. It just came out last year. Okay. We'll put a reference to it in the show notes. Um, the concordance here, the harmony, uh, goes through each one of the verses. And to be honest, I was surprised, actually, by how, how well those three books actually track with each other. Yeah, scrolling down through this page you provided, I am also surprised by that. The, ver the words are very, very similar and repeated across the three different books. And if, but of course, the devil's in the details, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the concordance actually stops at the end of the creation, right? Uh, yes, I just reached the end. They were yep. both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Right, and that's kind Sorry. of where our story starts. Yes, we're interested in Adam and Eve today. Yeah, so Adam and Eve are put in the garden, and they are innocent, and they're given um, instructions. And the instructions are to um, go forth and multiply and so forth. And so forth. Okay, so if you open up my notes, you'll see that I've aligned all the verses for the Genesis rest of the fall story. Yeah, Genesis 3 and Moses 4. Got it. And once right. again, and it surprised me, but maybe this is just, you know, revealing of my own ignorance, perhaps, at how, again, how well they track. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, of course they're similar. That doesn't surprise me, but... Um, and I'm I'm looking at your your comparison here for the first time, um, but I did expect them to be more different than they are, because I think and I thought a lot about this, and I think it's because you and I are familiar with the temple ceremony. You know that could be, and I've always thought of the temple ceremonies tracking most closely with Moses, but I do read these early chapters of Genesis with my um, AP literature kids every year when we do Frankenstein. Oh, cool. So, so I'm very familiar with the first three chapters of Genesis because I'm covering them all the time in school. Mm -hmm. um, but it's weird. When I read Moses, it feels more temply to me, even though looking at them side by side, they don't really seem that different. They're not very different. But, they, but the temple ceremony really is different. And so it adds quite a bit of dialogue. So I have an interesting aside here. I thought since I was doing my own personal study, you know, that I might go and try to Google the temple ceremony and get the text and put it in as well. Uh-huh. With no intention, of course, of making the document open to anybody. And I was, and I felt a little weird about it, of course, because it's the, because <laughs> it's the temple ceremony. 
What I quickly realized is that there was no way for me to do this, even with the internet that we have. Okay. Really? I'm surprised. I've never tried, but I've never tried either. And I know other people try and I thought they were successful. Here's what I found. I didn't try very hard because I found that myself going down a rabbit hole because it's Uh not on any church website. Sure. And by temple ceremony, let's be clear for those that don't know the temple ceremony of the endowment includes a narrative of the fall of Adam and Eve. And the words are different than what's in the Bible or in the Pearl of Great Price. And it's evolving. It's changed at least three times in our lifetimes. Right. So I Googled it and it's not on the church website. It's not on Wikipedia. The first place I found it was looked like a website that was made in 1998. (laughs) And it included the caveat, this does not include the 1990 changes. Hmm. So at that point, I was like, well, hold on. I can't trust this website at all to give me an accurate transcription of what's in the temple ceremony. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to trust any transcription. (laughs) (laughs) All of them will be unofficial by definition. Right. And so I I punted. I was like, I I, I just don't think I'm going to be able to trust what I see on the internet. So because it's hard to find and I don't, and because we can't recommend people looking for the temple ceremony, you're supposed to experience yourself. It leaves us at a bit, it makes it harder to talk about the fallen out of an Eve. So we have well, to kind of talk around it a bit in some places, I think. Yes and no. I mean, I mean, even if we had, because I think your point about that you have to experience it is a very important one. Um, it's, a, it's a text, it's a ritual text, right? It's meant to be lived. Um, even, I mean, a lot of scholars think that the Genesis story was a ritual text in the way we think of the endowment is, is like a story that you live, right? It's, it's, um, it's something you go through in order to uh, journey towards God, which is essentially a nice description of the endowment experience in a, in a LDS temple. But it's also likely um, the source of the Genesis story also like it is, it is inherently a ritualized text. It's something you're supposed to experience um, it is it is ritual. I like that um, interpretation of it being ritual. It's something I hadn't considered. I mean, they use the te- they actually often will talk about temple rituals when they talk about the temple, like in talks and lessons and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's a bit the word ritual is a bit of a negative in some ways because it, because there's a connotation of um, unthinkingness right? Well, it's anti-modern, right? It's anti-modern, right? In the same way that a word like worship never feels quite comfortable in my mouth because it, it doesn't feel like it's of my era. Yeah. But um, the, the point of a ritual is to be a, a text that is to be studied, right? Uh, something that is supposed to be lived through. Gone through again say. and again to be repeated. Because we're just as humans not very good at keeping things in our head sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Repetition is the, only, is the only key to learning, right? So I didn't, so when I made the concordance, I found that a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about Adam and Eve, it seemed to come more from the temple. Yeah. And so I wanted to go find some texts where it talks about 
the fall of Adam and Eve in a way that kind of synthesized all these approaches. So if you start just Googling it, right, you, you will quickly hit the nice Wikipedia page for Adam and Eve and Latter-day Saint movement, and it's fine. You'll hit the gospel topic, the fall about the uh, fall of Adam and Eve, and it's also fine. But the text that I found that I really liked was from the Ensign. 2006, The Fullness of the Gospel. The Fullness of the Gospel, The Fall of Adam and Eve, right. a series examining doctrines unique to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Published what year, did you say? This was 2006 in the Ensign. Okay. No idea who wrote it. <laughs> it is unsigned. Oh. Unsigned yeah. editorial. Yeah, the unsigned unsigned. <laughs> and, um, okay, so it's great because it's a more higher level description. So the Gospel Topics article is good as a starting place. So it talks about, and maybe we should maybe just summarize really quickly, right? It talks about how there is a tree, right? Yes. Every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, right? Yeah. But of the tree of knowledge, you can't eat for it is forbidden, right? Yes. And then um, it talks about our fallen condition, how they chose to eat, and it talks about the benefits of the fall. But the other article goes into more detail. So that's kind of where I thought we could, we could have our text today. Okay. What's the, when you think about the fall in, the, in comparison to other Christian religions, what jumps out at you as different? Well, that we unabashedly celebrate it. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We think it's awesome. We think that the fall of Adam and Eve is, not only is it great, but it was planned. And heroic. And heroic. Yeah. And that is so different than our colleagues in other, other faith traditions, I believe. Yeah, I mean... Not all Christians see it as an unmitigated tragedy, uh, but I don't think anyone is quite as positive about it as we are, at least not that I'm aware of. In fact, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the, fa for the fall in the Latter-day, um, there's a whole section called Positive Interpretation of the Fall, right? Okay. We do not see it. Unlike some Christians, Latter-day Saints generally do not see the fall of an Adam and Eve as a serious sin or even an overwhelmingly negative event, but rather a necessary step. And I even have a talk, right, by um, President Joseph Fielding Smith, which has a good quote. All right, so the name of the talk is Adam's Role in Bringing Us Mortality. We have President Joseph Fielding Smith, and it was given in, um, 1967, right? And what he talks about is that there was a footnote in his Bible that called the fall the shameful fall. Okay. Right? Um, man's shameful fall. And his response is that this is what the Lord expected Adam to do because that opened up a door to mortality and we came into the mortal world to receive a training in mortality that we could not get anywhere else or in any other way. I think that this is a surprising interpretation of the fall, that it was expected and that it was planned for. 
Yes. Invited, you might say. Mm -hmm. So why? Well, I mean, I know all the Pat answers. I know the Pat Latter-day Saint answers to this. Well, let's give um, them because I think it's good to at least state them. So uh, they were given the contradictory commandments, right? And they were going to have to choose one or the other, either donate the fruit or multiply and replenish the earth. The idea being that they could not reproduce before this time. Um, That's specifically one of the sections in the Ensign article that I wanted to quote that the, we were given two contradictory commandments, right? That they yeah. were placed to give us so that they had to make a choice. Either you can stay together in the garden or you can leave and go and have kids and learn good and evil. Yeah, which is a really complicated notion and one that um, I'm not sure we really explore the implications of that very often. Um, in the same way that we ne don't necessarily want to explore how um, what sacrificing our son a la Abraham might look like in our lives or killing a drunk man a la Nephi might look like in our lives. Uh, I don't think we often want to explore what contradictory commandments might mean for us. Um, it's something we want to push aside as, as exclusive to Adam and Eve. Um, well, that's, that's a great point. Okay, so just to just fully state it, right? Adam and Eve were given these two commandments. They were contradictory, right? They couldn't both stay in the Garden of Eden and be innocent. Yeah. And ha and um, no good and evil and and multiply and replenish the earth. So they so Eda, so Eve ate the fruit, um, and they left the garden and they became mortal, and we will die but Christ was provided. So we have the three pillars of salvation, right? As they, yeah. as they say, or the first is the creation. The second is the fall. And the third is the atonement. Okay. So what you said is interesting though. We don't, we, we don't, uh, we don't have contra, we don't talk about contradictory commandments very much. Right. Because can they make think, us uncomfortable. Well, can you think of another instance? Well, when I've, when I've heard, a few times recently is the notion that um, that I mean, as Latter Day Saints, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, falling in love and getting married and building a life with someone, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you're if you're an LGBTQ member of the church, that becomes very complicated. Mm -hmm. It all of a sudden is contrad that that expectation, that suggestion that this is the most important thing we do in life, is in contrast with a lot of um, official statements from the church and the way people um, line up what is right and wrong. Uh, so that, that's what I've heard very often. And, and, and members of the church who have struggled with this contrast, like um, they arrive at different solutions to this problem. Some of them um, decide that they will um, follow the expectation that the most important thing in life is to build a family. And others decide that the most important thing to do is to do as the brethren say and, and um, live a, a celibate life. That's not an easy, that's not an easy uh, decision to have to make. That's interesting. Um, can you think of another example? Um, oh, shoot, I just had one for you and I've lost it. 
Well, I mean, a lot of times there's there's little things, right? There's also, you know, um, and this this ties back into our episode about sort of flexible commandments. Um, it's good to pay a generous fast offering, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's also good to um, save for a rainy day. Yep. It's also good to. Uh, I mean, there's a, money is such an interesting one because it's finite, right? We can't do all the good things we would like to do with money. The same is true of time. Uh, I think it was Elder Oaks who gave the talk Good, Better, Best a few years ago. Right. Um, time is limited. So are you going to do the good things, the better things, or the best things? Like all of them are good. And trying to figure out what is better and what is best is maybe the task of mortal life. Like, it's nice to say that there's good and there's evil and we just have to choose between those. But frankly, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's not like taking the, the fruit of the tree and learning the difference between good and evil made life easy. It certainly did not. Okay, so let's go back to the fall. We stated without proving that or we're trying to argue the truth of why, why are these two commandments contradictory? Which goes, I suppose, to the whole, what are we supposed to, so we learn from the fall that we had Adam and Eve, and they were in the state of innocence, and then they on purpose took the choice to leave and lose that innocence, right? Or they were a bunch of dummies, depending on your perspective. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's one of the things I want to get into maybe a bit later. But are, so these two commandments, they were contradictory? How did they contradict? Well, that's a good question. Um, because not all faiths believe that, right? Some faiths believe that if they hadn't taken the fruit, we would have still been born, but we all would have lived in a garden where God walked and God talked. Um, it's not like the Bible explains this explicitly. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is a question that has predated Joseph Smith, too. In, in Paradise Lost, um, Adam and Eve go through a very similar journey where they partake of the fruit um, and then realize later that it was a good thing. And part of that, of course, was Milton was setting up for the sequel, Paradise Regained, which is all about Jesus. Like, it was important that there was a fall because otherwise there's no Jesus, which sounds very Mormon. Um, and he's writing this, you know, a couple hundred years before, uh, before Joseph Smith. So, I mean, it is a question that predates Joseph Smith. I mean, this goes back to Paralandra, and this will be like the third time we've mentioned it on the podcast. Yes, at right? least. Yeah, where the whole point is of an unfallen world. Um, boy, I really think it's good. I really think it's worth reading. All right, but here's, here's my real question for you, Eric. Yeah. How could... Okay, so we've, we've stated that we have a fall. We haven't talked about the literalism of the fall story, right, yet. I hope to talk, <laughs> cover that later. Okay. We haven't talked about the art and portrayal and other religions as much as I want to, but we have stated what's happened. There were two people in a garden. God was there. And then Satan came and tempted Eve. Okay? Well, a serpent came. Right. So in the concordance, it says that, um, which is different than the book of Genesis, 
it says, uh, and he spake by the mouth of the serpent. So referring to Satan. Yes. Right. And then in the yeah. temple ceremony, of course, there's no snake at all. It's just Michael Ballum. <laughs> in the good old days. <laughs> okay. And then the Eve says, okay, right? I'll do it. Yeah. She saw that. And then God says, okay, where are you guys? Because they're hiding because they're naked. And yeah. she says, you know, hey, what have you done? And, and she says, the serpent beguiled me. Yeah. And I did eat. How could this all have been planned with that statement in all three accounts of the fall of Adam and Eve? Well, it is a fascinating question, right? Like, can Satan just not help himself even though he knows? Or did he misunderstand the... Is he so wrapped up in his own idea of saving everyone without, without worry that um, he can't see that pushing the big red button was the plan all along? Um, I don't know. And like, what is his motivation? Is, is he just so misunderstanding or he just can't help himself? Or what is it about that? So let me get the exact quote because I want to state it exactly as it says in Moses. And I, the Lord God, called unto Adam and said unto him, where goest thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I beheld that I was naked and I hid myself. And I, the Lord God, said unto Adam, Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? If so, thou shouldst surely die. And the man said, The woman thou gavest me, and commanded that she should remain with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I did eat. And I, the Lord God, said unto the woman, What is this thing which thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So there's two questions. What was yeah. the deception? And if there was a deception, how does this fit in with the fall was a planned event? Well, the word beguile, because of its really prominent placement in the story, we've, we've come to think of, I think, in many religious communities as meaning like lying or tricking or something like that. But that's not really what it means. It means to like, to bedazzle, right? Um, you think so? Because that's not what the link in the in the um, okay. There's one of these links. It says that it is honesty. So to clarify, you are you are you are talking about the um, links as they appear in the LDS standard works. That's right. One of the footnotes is specifically to the word honesty, which to me sounds more like a lie. Yeah, but my my whole point is that that is the way religious people think about this word because of how it appears in here, but that's not really what it means in other contexts or, or prior to King James making us feel this way because of this story. I think that if you asked people what the guile meant, a lot of them would identify the Street Fighter 2 character. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that character. <laughs> He's the one that you shout Sonic Boom a lot. Okay. But I think that it's not a very commonly used word. Well, and I, I think that this story is so, so, so important because the way you understand uh, the Garden of Eden story from beginning to end, um, 
is the way you understand the world. So, so take another word that's not a common word from this story, help meet. Mm-hmm. Um, Eve is created as a help meet. And my understanding is in the Hebrew, this is, this is a pretty egalitarian term. But if you want to have a misogynistic religion, then, and, we, and you think about there's been plenty of history of misogyny within Christianity, you can find people who see helpmeet as proof that women are below men in some significant way. Um, I was just reading a manifesto by the Prairie Muffins a week ago, okay. uh, which is a group of Christian women who, this is, this is their understanding, we are helpmeets, we are, we are less than men, and it is our job to make our men feel good about themselves. Um, this is, I think, uh, I, th- I think what happens is this story is, and this is part of the reason I teach the first few chapters of Genesis in my AP Lit class. It's such an important part of our culture that it has changed the way we use words because the story is so important and people use it to whatever ends they want to accomplish. Um, if you want women to be less than men, you use this story to prove it, whether that's really what the story is saying or not. And there's a lot of using this story as a weapon as opposed to um trying to let the story wash over you and i'm not i'm not sure we're totally unguilty of this ourselves okay let me show i'm gonna give you another link okay that is exactly what you're talking about mormon mastery mormon or mormon monastery excuse me Mm -hmm. the redemption of eve by jolene edmonds rockwood i have no idea who that is i don't either and I have to confess that I only found this link about 20 minutes before we started recording. Okay. So it's not really been properly vetted. The only thing I can tell you <laughs> is at the bottom of this page, it says New Mormon Studies CD-ROM, but from the 1998 well, Smith, Smith um, Research Wow. Okay. Okay. Here's and it has 114 footnotes, so you know it's good. You know it's good. So it seems like it's, and it's linked to several times from the Wikipedia page on the Follow Madam and Madam. Oh, interesting. With LDS references. So that's where I came from it. Here's the first paragraph. For over 2,000 years, since the first commentary on Genesis was presented, Eve has been blamed for woes ranging from the origin of sin to the presumed inferiority of the female sex. Because of Eve, women have been cursed, their subordination to man has been justified, and their feminine weaknesses have been stereotyped. Much of this tradition has been so ingrained in our Judeo-Christian culture that we are often unaware of its presence or its origin. Yet, if it were possible to eradicate all of our culturally induced prejudices about Eve, and examine the original Hebrew text of the whole Eden account, we would find a story that actually says very little of what has been throughout, of what it has throughout the centuries been credited with saying. And then she describes what she's going to talk about in this big long essay. We will see how commentators have interpreted Genesis 1 through 3, and we will look at the Hebrew text, and we will compare this perspective with other sources of particular relevance to Latter-day Saints. I think I can join with you in stating that we just as a church unanimously reject this accounting of Eve. Well, I think we do intellectually, but we also inherit a lot of our cultural baggage. And um, I think that we, we still see echoes of this, even though, even though officially this is a rejection we are enthusiastically making. We are, we are all for the redemption of Eve. Um, I do think that some of this cultural baggage still hangs around. Generally in the LDS church, we love Eve. We celebrate her. 
and we just rejoice in her decision. Right? Yes. Yeah. In fact, um, relevant to our Heavenly Mother discussion um, a few months ago, something I've noticed is that simultaneous with the trend of more Mormon art celebrating Heavenly Mother, there's, there's, there's a parallel and concurrent uh, groupings of art, whether it's visual or poetry or whatever, celebrating Eve. Um, both of them are sort of celebrated together because I think they've been dumped in the same trash can together for a long time. And the redemption of one is accompanied by the redemption of the other. That's awesome. Are you going to show us some art by the end of this conversation? Um, I certainly can. I okay. brought a couple examples. Great. So um, we love Eve. We think that she knew what she was doing, right? She made this At least decision. somewhat. And this is what I'm trying to, trying to get at. What does, be, I'm just, this is me just being curious. I don't have a, the, an answer that really satisfies me. I agree that, it, that um, it was the right choice. And in Moses 5.11, I just want to read this. Because after the fact, it says, And Eve and his wife heard all these things and were glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we should never have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all obedient. Unto yeah. all the obedient. So that's, that's Eve's quote at the end of Moses. That's basically our thesis statement. Right, right. So without the fall, we should never have known good and evil, would never have had joy of our redemption. This is the very purpose of earth life. Eve just summed it up for us in one sentence. Right. And I love it. And if Adam and Eve are characters which we reenact ritually, then hopefully we too can say with Eve, were it not for our transgressions, we should never have done all these important things, which is the purpose of life. Um, so, so I love it. But this is face and hat. <laughs> I want to I want to answer my questions. And one of my questions is how would what does beguile mean? I thought it meant deceive and you think it means bedazzle. Uh yeah, well let's let's uh I'm going to go over to Wiktionary in our continued support of publicly uh created open source sources. Uh -huh. um, so beguile means, uh, well, the first, the first definition as they have it as the first one is to deceive or delude. Um, but uh, the second one is to charm, delight, or captivate. And the third one is to cause time to pass quickly by way of pleasant diversion. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, maybe it was entirely deception, but I kind of like the idea of it being, of being, you know, to charm, delight, or captivate, to bedazzle, as I said earlier. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for that because Eve isn't innocent at this point. She doesn't really understand a whole lot. And a flashy object is always attractive. Okay, it's easier I'm gonna, to... I'm going to question what you just said. Okay? okay. What you just said is that even it is, is an innocent and doesn't really understand a, a whole lot. I purport that's not here in this description of the Eve. Well, I think our understanding of them is as... In fact, in we know that they were taught by God. That's true. In the, in, the, in the garden. I don't wish to say that they were ignorant, but without experience and without an understanding of opposites, everything is theoretical. 
it's kind of like um, I teach teenagers for a living. And one thing about the teenage brain, of course, is that although intellectually they can understand that their actions result in certain consequences and they know that, um, the part of their brain that lets that knowledge take the wheel has not developed yet. So even though they know intellectually that uh, behaving in activity A is going to result in consequence B, they don't let that knowledge necessarily drive them. And, and I imagine Adam and Eve are sort of like this. They have a lot of facts from being taught by God, but they don't have any understanding. They have no wisdom yet. Mm-hmm. And um, so, the, you know, you got to got to work that out. Mm-hmm. I, I like that interpretation. I think that it might be, um, I think that my literalism, I'm trying to rest an understanding of what happened thousands of years ago from this, these words. <laughs> and it might not be totally amenable to this, right? Yeah. Um, to me, when I read this and I see the word beguile, I see it as just being very simple. Satan lied. And I can point out where the lie is, right? Here in verse, in verse eight, um, it says, and the woman said unto this, okay, so seven, and he, Satan, said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of this garden. But of the fruit of the tree of which thou beholdest in the middle of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God know that in the day ye eat thereof, then shall your eyes be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And interestingly, by the way, the New, Te- the New Testament version uses the word gods there as well. Um, so the lie, where's the lie? I'm going to say it if you don't. Well, I assume you're going to say when he says you shall not surely die. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that. Okay. So God said you'll die in the it. day thereof, and, and they didn't. So is that, you know, is that a lie? Right. And now you're now now we're talking about God's time versus like in days and things. Oh, that's an easy excuse, Aaron. I know. I don't like it either. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, it is the only way to. And this is where the literalism of the Bible starts becoming hard. Well, and this is where maybe understanding some Hebrew would help us out too. Okay. Do you have? Um, I don't. Okay. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say, I think there are other ways to think about this too. Um, one explanation I've heard, like I talked earlier how Satan's motivation doesn't make any sense to me here because he should have a pretty good understanding of this plan. Um, so one, one theory I heard once upon a time is that his plan isn't just to get them to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but to then march them over and, and eat the tree of life, which Lehi says they would then live forever in their sins and that that was his plan. Um, and that makes some sense. It requires the Book of Mormon to to put piece that plan together. And that's not exactly in the biblical account. But then at least Satan's motivation makes sense. If he's trying to destroy things, moving the plan forward doesn't do that. Unless he just really just never understood the plan. But if that's the case, then how could he um, reject it in a way that allows him to go to outer darkness if he never really understood the plan? Or maybe yeah. he understood and he just can't help breaking things. Maybe he's like the Joker and he just wants to watch the world burn. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, there's a couple, I mean, that's the nature of a story like this, which um, for all its possible historicity, which I know you want to get to, 
is ultimately its purpose for us is not to be um, to, not to be like peer-reviewed history, but to have deeper applicable truths to our spiritual lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer is. I think that I've always thought, or maybe even I was taught, that the deception was when he said, thou shalt not truly die, but shall be as the gods. The first part was false and the second part was true. But it just doesn't jive to me that Eve would be, that Eve would be caught by that, right? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> It seems it's, to it's me... all tricky. I mean, I like I've read um, a couple works of fiction. I can't pull them out of my head right now. But where what the devil says, he's trying to be sneaky, sneaky. But what he accidentally does is cause Eve to understand exactly what her role has been this whole time. Mm-hmm. She hasn't quite been able to piece it together. And then he says, oh, you do this. And she's like, oh, that's what God meant. Uh-huh. Uh, and that gives her a lot more autonomy in this decision as opposed to being fooled. All right. Now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere that I like. Um, I can see how El Diablo would. I mean, look, the problem is that I can't credit the, the devil here with any kind of goodness. So anything that he does that's good has to be ant- accidental because we know that everything that is good comes from God. Right. That that is said somewhere, I believe. I believe I've right. heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, we can state that as an axiom. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being specific in my term there. <laughs> it also allows us to rethink um, some of the other things that are, people say. For instance, uh, Adam. Whenever I read the part where God says, "What have you guys been up to?" Um, everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, Adam just throws Eve totally under the bus here." <laughs> um, well, I thought that was kind of interesting too. Yeah, but. But you don't have to interpret it that way. It could be yeah. a reasonable explanation. Like Adam's yeah. like, well, we're supposed to stay together and she ate it. And mm-hmm. so I did what I think is the right thing by also eating of the fruit and we're standing together here. Yeah. Um, the text is stripped down enough that it's really difficult to read between any lines because there's only a single line. Of, the of, temple language is a bit more clear here, but we can't really quote it here. But um, I think it makes this make more sense, even even more sense. Um, okay, I love it. I uh, I think it's very interesting. I have no idea. So now comes the more fun part of the, the conversation. Okay, <laughs> how much of this really happened? Finally, geez. <laughs> how much? How much of this happened? Literally, <laughs> I don't know. Um, this is this is a question that gets me thinking in circles. I mean, the Bible allows for there to be people already outside the garden when Adam and Eve leave the garden. Okay, go into this, because I heard about this recently. Something that I knew peripherally. Um, I think, yeah, my sister pointed it out to me recently. Um, uh, go ahead. Talk okay, about... Okay, you'll have to give me a second to open up Genesis, because I do not have it open. Um, You're going to start talking to me about children of men versus children of Adam. Yeah, I don't really want to play that game so much. Um, do you know what chapter it is in Genesis? By no chance? idea. I was not planning on bringing this up. Um, nor, nor was I. But it really. does say, I mean, this is probably the verse you're thinking of. This is chapter six, verse one. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. Um, but one interpretation of that is other people who were not 
um, children of Adam and Eve were on the earth. Yes. Which is directly contrary to the gospel topics, which at the very top of it, as descendants of Adam and Eve. So we are descendants of Adam and Eve. I guess it doesn't specifically say that there weren't other people that we could be descended from. But well, I'm pretty sure it's in here somewhere. If any of us are descendants of Adam and Eve, by now we all are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because of how statistics work. Yeah. Um, okay, well, but there's the yeah, one interpretation of this is that there's other people who aren't descendants of Adam and Eve, right? That meshes better with the fossil record. Yeah, well, okay, so yeah, that absolutely does, <laughs> of course. Um, we have a common ancestor among all these other um, species of hominid, right? Yeah. So we believe that Adam was a real person, right? Yeah, yeah, that is, that's... Let's, that's... let's, let's build up some foundations of beliefs, right? Adam okay. and Eve were real people. Adam was the Archangel Michael, helped create the earth, right? Yes, that's difficult to avoid. Okay. We also believe in evolution, as we stated firmly in our evolution episode. So, how much of the fallen Adam and Eve is a literal story? It's a good question. Um, And sort of like eternal marriage and a couple of other things we've talked about in past episodes, it's a difficult thing to just dismiss by saying it's not important because it's fundamentally important Mm -hmm. uh, to the way Latter-day Saints understand the world. On the other hand, it's not, right? It doesn't affect your day-to-day life, whether Adam and Eve are metaphors or real people, whether they were um, created from the dust of the earth and placed in the garden, or if they were uh, part of the evolutionary tree. Like, Like, ultimately, those things don't have a big effect on our day-to-day life, but they do have an important uh, resonance when we consider the entire story as Latter-day Saints understand it, from predating the existence of the earth to being around way past its ending. Um, and that is the purpose of religion, of course, is to answer the questions, the big questions, the bigger than the now questions. Um, but drawing the line between metaphor and fact is is something that religion is kind of terrible at. Like, <laughs> we want every like we want everything to be both ways, and I mean, this is I think Jesus is a good example of this. He um, he never gave people straight answers hardly, and even when he gave a straight answer, it didn't always necessarily vibe cleanly with what he said before. He is the Son of God, he is the Son of Man. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of sneakiness with his language, and sometimes um, he would just ignore the question and write upon the ground. Yeah, like ultimately. <laughs> I think one of the lessons here is that these are questions which we don't really have the capacity to understand. And so while they're useful to think about, ultimately, I don't know that they can define um, our sense of reality because we we're not given enough information to understand them fully. You have to be able to accept the complexity of it. So I agree with what you're saying, except that, It's presented here as something that really happened. <laughs> in Genesis? No, I mean here in this Gospel Topics article. Oh, uh, the Gospel Topics. Those aren't canon. And, and in the Fullness of the Gospel Insight article, right? Also not canon. Right? And this conference talk, which talks about Adam and the fall. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I think there's a real danger to trying to insist on an understanding of this stuff. Um, like Brigham Young came up with the Adam God theory because he was trying to solve these problems. Ooh, let's talk about that. That's been an uncomfortable thing for us for a long time. Long time. Yeah. Do you have stuff you want to say about that? Not particularly, other than I don't think he's right. Yeah, I don't think, I and, think the President Kimball specifically denounced that. Yeah, and I, I think that you can see every president of the church since Brigham Young almost as if specifically thinking of Adam God, being very careful about expressing sort of speculative opinion because as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it's official. And of course, Brigham Young didn't know how to express a thought without making it sound official. But <laughs> um, I do think that uh, we see a lot of the way apostles and prophets, the way that they represent themselves is in large measure influenced by Brigham Young shooting his mouth off. All right, are you ready to be crazy? Sure. I have no basis in what I'm about <laughs> to say. Oh, good. I really haven't even Googled to see if somebody has written up this theory in a much better way and actually cited it. Okay. To me, the fall of Adam and Eve seems to be a description of evolutionary biology. Okay and a turning of a group of amoral and ununderstanding people to a group of people who had an understanding of good and evil. So that's an, that's actually makes a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't solve the Adam and Eve or specific people problem. It doesn't. So, yeah. And it doesn't solve another another interesting question, which we've, I don't remember if we talked about this already, which was the Joseph Smith statement that there was no death <laughs> before the fall. Well, maybe it was right? spiritual death. Maybe all those innocent hominids, all those Australopithecus folk uh, were just with God all the time because they were so innocent. How do you like them apples? I think it's okay. <laughs> okay here we go fairmormon.org okay okay so the question is was there death before the fall right and it says there is undeniable archaeological evidence <laughs> that there was yeah so here is the bible unless dictionary. adam and eve were single-celled organisms several billion years ago latter-day saints revelation this is from the bible dictionary teaches that no death on this earth for any forms of life before the fall of Adam. Indeed, death entered this world as a direct result of the fall. Hmm. Mm -hmm. This interpret I'm just reading, I'm continuing to read from Fair Mormon. This interpretation has been shared by many church authors, including President Joseph Fielding Smith and Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Consequently, the concept of no death before the fall on the entire earth has made its way into many church instructional manuals. Right? Yep, and once stuff is there, it's hard to get rid of, like the accidental racist stuff in the most recent Come Follow Me manual that somebody forgot didn't take out. Oh, that was such a bummer, wasn't it? Yeah. I couldn't hardly believe it. It just made me so sad. But they fixed it, and I guess that's okay. But Okay is not, a strong word. Not, not usually, really, but I think in this it's case... Not it's not really okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, how does this work? if there was no death on the earth before the fall. 
What does that mean? Well, again, I think it's a ritual text, right? It's important when you're reenacting the story. When it says in Genesis that, you know, all the critters were eating herbs, um, that has great symbolic importance. Um, it's difficult for me. You can't, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a real problem. And um, literally, my, literal minded people um, have a hard time with this, right? This is why the Genesis story um, is so often abused by people who want the world to be a certain way because they insist on literalism. Um, I think literalism is one of the great things that God would like us to break free from. Not to say that we're breaking free of religion, but, but thinking that we understand something. I'll give you an example from the Book of Mormon. Um, in the Book of Mormon, Abish had long ago been converted on account of a remarkable vision of her father, right? Um, and for a long time, you know, okay, her dad saw a vision and converted the family, et cetera, et cetera. Until somebody pointed out to me that the phrasing is ambiguous. We don't know that her father had a vision or if Abish had a vision of her father. Um, the text could be either. And, but for the literalist, the first reading is always the right reading and there's not really room to question the text. And if there's one thing that's clear to me is when you're reading scripture, you are supposed to question the text. You're supposed to doubt your own interpretation because otherwise you read it once and you're done. Like where's humility in this? You read um, Isaiah and think you understand it on the first time because of whatever reason. Like, no, clearly not. Isaiah is multi-layered and it's complicated. And I think people are largely willing to accept that of Isaiah, but I think it's also true of something relatively straightforward like the Garden of Eden story, which is a story involving two people and their adventures in the Garden of Eden. Um, but I think anybody who settles on thinking they know what it says has lost some humility and has yeah. lost a willingness to listen to God. Specifically on the subject of death, if you continue reading this entire page on Fair Mormon, which I'll put in the show notes, it, ta it does talk about um, other le church leaders um, specifically taking the other side of the conversation that there was death before the Garden of Eden. So, um, yeah, so this is, I think I agree with you. I think that literalism here is not useful. What is useful is the ritual of learning these truths about humanity and trying to apply them, right? Yeah, but this is part of the paradox of religion. We and of the literalism of Mormonism is that we believe the Bible to be the word of God. This is something that my dad um, talked about sometimes, and I've always really liked. When it says in the doc, in the articles of faith that we believe the Bible to be the word of God, that's what we mean, right? Yeah. We don't say that this is a good story. We're stating th that these are things that are real. Well, we're stating that they are things that are true. And I yeah. think there's an important distinction there. Hmm. Yeah, fair um, enough. I think Huckleberry Finn says immensely important and true things about America, but Huckleberry Finn never lived. Jim never lived. But that story is true, and it teaches us something vital to understand about our own nation. And, and that I'm not dismissing the Bible as fiction, 
what I'm saying is that there's more than one way for things to be true. There's more than one way for God to reach our hearts. Uh, I mean, the parables are the classic example, right? Jesus made up these fictions to tell a story and to teach us a true principle. And um, again, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the Bible as fiction, but what I'm saying is that real and historically factual is not the same thing as the word of God, is not the same thing as useful, is not the same thing as true. There can be more than one way for things to be true. Yeah, that's great. When, when Plutarch um, was writing parallel lives about ancient uh, Greeks and Romans, he was trying, I'm, I'm going to oversimplify the history now, but he was trying to be the first real historian to just go to the facts, to go to what the record said. Um, but it was difficult for him because when you're trying to write about Theseus, well, you know, he rode a winged horse is what it says in the records. And I'm a little skeptical of this, but that's what it says. And I'm, I'm trying to follow this, these principles of, of historicity, and this is the best I can do. And it was a little easier with people who were closer to being contemporary with him. But I mean, this is, this is a difficulty. Um, and ultimately the purpose of, of Plutarch's history was, although he was trying to be as accurate as possible, ultimately the purpose was to compare someone from Greece and someone from Rome and show what we can learn from their lives and how we can be better people by looking at the great men of history. And scripture does something similar. It's true in more than one way. It's interesting because regarding Adam and whether or not this is par parable versus whether or not this happened as it's recorded, Adam in particular is the subject of specific prophecies. We know that he's coming, he will be part of Adam on Diamon, right? Yeah. I mean, stuff like that. Um, he was, Joseph Smith saw, he, he appeared, uh, saw Adam, right? Joseph Smith says he saw Adam in the celestial kingdom. That's in DNC 137.5. So it's interesting. Um, I love it. I don't have the answer, but it's, this is why we do another show. So we can talk right. about, instead of teaching the simplified version, we can talk about the details and the history. Um, Catholics, <laughs> he says, uh, jumping to an entirely different discussion. <laughs> um, and uh, has a, a much different interpretation of the fall of Adam and Eve. Let's hear it. Okay. Traditionally, the fall of Adam and Eve is said to have brought four wounds to human nature, which are enumerated by St. Bed and especially Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you tell me or have a guess as to what the four wounds are? Uh, no, no guesses. Okay, the first one is original sin. Okay. All right, which is um, something that we discount in our church, right? Right. The idea that it's inherited to yeah. each of us. Yeah. And um, we are not responsible for the actions of Adam and Eve, in other words. Yes, we're punished for our own transgressions. Mm -hmm. Okay, the second one is concupiscence. All right, which is an awesome word. What it says is that the soul's passions are no longer ordered perfectly to the soul's intellect. Okay. Right? And then the third one is physical frailty and death. And the fourth one is darkened intellect and ignorance. So what I thought was cool about this is that the, the other three track pretty well with our beliefs. Do, you, do, do the Catholics assign each of those four original wounds to the wounds of Jesus? 
Oh, the like hand, I, the hand, the feet, and the side. Oh, that's great. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy rejects the idea that the guilt of original sin is passed on through the generations. Oh, they do. So, yeah, this is another where instance they broke where up. Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy is very different from Catholicism. Another time when we've been surprised by that. Yes, mm-hmm. it, it happens quite often, revealing our ignorance. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, that's, those are my words. Where, where else did you want to go? Well, I think that one of the important parts is that ultimately, although Eden sounds nice, we reject it as the place we want to be. Okay. So with, with that introduction, I want to read a couple stanzas from a poem called Utopia by Lauren Nielsen Baxter. Okay. Um, I would like to point out that she spells Utopia with a capital U, capital T. Oh, with like Utah? <laughs> yeah. So uh, whenever I say Utopia, remember it's spelled that way. Okay. Have you ever heard of a flawless paradise? Who would tell about it? There's not much of a story there. Life's perfect. The end. As it turns out, you have to live in heaven for a while before you see what's wrong with it, before the angel with the flaming sword swoops down and wrecks your fun. So take a place like Utopia and throw in a snake. But don't stop there. Add an apple, a bursting fountain, heathens, women, and Pandora's box. Uh, It goes on for another stanza, but I want to stop there because... um, I'm interested in this idea that that paradise really isn't that attractive once you get to know it. It sounds attractive when you're not there, but nobody actually wants to be there. It's, it's but everybody wants to be in paradise. Well, nobody wants to stay there. <laughs> nobody wants to stay there. Um, I have another poem that's relevant to what you're saying. This is by um, Claire Ackerbrand. And um, at the beginning of her book what was left of the stars the first few poems uh have a very strong eden vibe and a very mormon eden vibe um that sort of forces you to think about the endowment um so in the poem first actors which is about a couple actors who play adam and eve at the end of the play although it's hard not to think of a mormon writer writing about actors playing adam and eve and not think about the endowment um but the endowment is like you could argue, certainly, the most holy space in our Latter-day Saint life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least at least the holiest that you can predictably arrange and experience. And yet, I wrote in my original review of this book, for all its sacred reality, it is highly artificial. Whether live or film, the endowment just does not qualify as realism. And because of that, no matter how emotionally or statically or sleepily one might engage with the atonement, we're, or excuse me, the endowment, we are always aware that we are participants in ritual. And so after Adam and Eve speak their, quote, last line and the grass carpet is rolled up, unquote, and they change into their street clothes, that's another quotation, um, they're still very human people. The, the actress in the poem has to catch her breast in a brassiere as the man buttons his jeans. And then the final stanza, they both fall asleep that night, tossing in their separate beds, hoping to be remembered for good or ill. And I, I think that that's a really important aspect of Adam and Eve is um, regardless of how literal the story is, it's our job to remember them and remember what they learn and what, um, and what we learn from them. Like ultimately, it's, it's about remembering because when you're in the temple, we have decided, and this is 
an insane decision for us to make, but we've decided to act as saviors on Mount Zion. And this all starts with the idea of Adam and Eve leaving paradise to do something more worthwhile. Um, one of my goals someday is to um, is to put together an anthology just of Latter-day Saint writers and all the stuff that's been done in poetry and play and fiction with the atonement or not, excuse me, the fall, because it is it is something we are always engaging in in very interesting ways. I just finished a, um, a flintlock fantasy trilogy of a total of about, I don't know, 1800 pages or something by a friend of mine, DJ Butler. Um, the first book is Witchy Eye. I highly recommend the series. Um, first of all, it's, it's just straight up entertaining fantasy, but it engages with ideas of divinity and um, Eden and the fall and personal responsibility in really evocative ways and in very interesting ways. And bringing your Mormon eyes to those books is really valuable. Any, any words of summing up? Well, I think, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that where we started, like Adam and Eve are heroes. We think that they are marvelous and someone we, people we should emulate. And, um, and the, the next question is to figure out like, how, how do we do that? What does that mean in our lives? And uh, I think that's the, that's one, like a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show, it's the work of a lifetime.